Shady Town Radio Hour is on the air. I am Brody Foster Hubbard. I'm Bob Schreiner. Today we have a purveyor of words and phrases. Purveyor of fine words and phrases, if I may. Fine words and phrases, yes. There are many purveyors of words and phrases, but if you're looking for fine words and phrases, you come to me. And me is Brody. You is Brody. I, I is Dylan. That's correct. I thought I would confuse that, not you. <laughs> not an actual Brody. I will be playing the part of Dylan Brody for the remainder of this podcast. <laughs> Bob, why don't you tell us about our friend and guest, Dylan Brody? Well, first of all, let me say that I think friend is overstating the matter. Uh, friendly. We're, well, I'm certain, I try to be friendly. I strive to be friendly and to not suck. Those are, those are the basic goals with which I set out on every day. Uh, but we we are barely acquaintances, uh, Brody. Brody, what is your last name, Brody? It's, it's the last name is Hubbard. I use my middle Brody name Hubbard. Foster to differentiate myself from uh, my father, who's also Brody Hubbard, but not a Brody Foster Hubbard. I uh, that's interesting. Yeah. I uh, I have other ways of differentiating myself from my father. Um, for one thing, I moved three thousand miles away. Uh, okay. Uh, well, Brody, uh, we have barely met. As as is made clear by the fact that I had no idea what your last name was. <laughs> we met once at a gig that we did together in a, a vintage clothing store. And uh, Bob, you, you and I met via the interwebs. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you booked me for the gig at which I met Brody in a vintage clothing store. Because you know the man who runs the record label that puts out all of my stuff to date. That's right. The lovely and talented Dan Schlissel. A stand-up record. Uh, a stand-up record. You know Dan Schlissel, so I, I will do my impression of Dan Schlissel for you. I've Please. never, I don't think I've ever done this publicly before. But uh, after he recorded the first CD with me, it's like working with Eeyore, working with Dan Schlissel. He's a, a, a lovely man, and he works very hard. But any problem feels as though it weighs heavily on him from the moment he sees it. So I recorded with him, and uh, he came into town to record... Uh, uh, Twist of the Wit, the first one that he recorded for me. And then he went back to Minnesota, Minneapolis. Minneapolis. And uh, I waited because when you record with somebody other than yourself, you don't get to go home and listen to it right away. He said, gesturing as though he listened to all his work over an old-fashioned telephone. <laughs> uh, you you have to wait until the people listen and engineer and then email back files and then you get to listen. And then so I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm hearing nothing from him and two weeks have gone by and two and a half weeks and I'm thinking this is horrible what's going on is he on the road why is he not calling me and then I get home from a meeting and there's a message on my machine that says this hi Dylan uh, it's Dan Schlissel stand up records um, listen I just uh, listened to the material that we got from that recording session in Malibu and um, I think I think we did the best job we could with you know the acoustics of the room and the situation we had but um, I just had to call you right away to let you know that um, I am so proud to have you on the label and honored to be working with you. So just call me back when you can. 
what? What? I just, God! I'm standing in my office thinking, oh, crap, do I need to pay for a new plane ticket for him? Did I somehow screw it up? Did we screw up? Was there no way to get a decent record? What did we do? It turns out he was just complimenting me in the highest possible terms very slowly and with a depressive tone of voice. Yeah, I thought you were going to get diagnosed with cancer by yeah. the end of that message. That's what I was saying. What, what happened? Did we, did, are you telling me that you lost the data? No, you listened to the data. Okay, you didn't lose the data. You listened to it, and you have to tell me what? You have to tell me what? Uh, oh. So that's, that's Dan Schlissel. Uh, is your experience with him been anything similar? Um, most of Dan and I, I mean, we're, we're friendlier. So our, I guess that, 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 that statement bears a, a contrast of friendlier than something. Um, I say friendlier than business, it's not business right. folk. And um, so, yeah, I met Dan in Athens, Georgia at a show and um, just hit it off well with him. So, so the times that I've, there have been times that he has been here in L.A. and terribly busy as the town tends to do to visitors yes. who come for business. And um, I always get like very apologetic. Yes. You know, voicemails and emails, not yep. just one. Uh, from Daniel apologetic for just not having had the time to hang out, which of course anyone that lives here understands. Like you can live within my zip code, and I won't see you. And I know that I don't have to apologize to you because you live there too. Yeah, and you understand. Yeah, but it's always a very like, man, I'm I'm sorry. Just you know, don't please don't let this reflect on how <laughs> I feel about you. Yes, which is funny because you know we've never been intimate. Or, oh, that's sad. Or, or you know, I mean, I just well, there was just never the right kind of combination of atmosphere. And, I understand. And and alcohol, uh, furniture, for that <laughs> lighting to, like, is to also, really happen. Yeah. yeah, that's a big. That's important to me. At least he's a he's an incredibly sweet man. He cares deeply, and he's so sweet. And just his ability to express a sigh in a in a voicemail message is extraordinary. It is very yeah, full. One of the. <sighs> Um, one of the, the happiest I'd seen Dan, and I haven't seen him just a, a tremendous amount of times, but he was visiting once and, and had and just wanted to do nothing businessy and hoped that we could just go hang out and feast. So I took Dan on a so what I sort of called the the great Los Angeles French dip debate, which was a visit, <laughs> a visit to Philippe's and to Cole's where we ate pretty much over ate at both uh venues and it was a it was just funny to see a guy that was so stressed out and seemingly so um, responsive to stressed out to be so you know satiated and happy and just that's a good entertained. thing well done I, I try you have done a service to the world of stand-up and stand-up records <laughs> and in turn it brings us together so there's there a, bit of, a bit of reciprocity and an excuse to use the word reciprocity. You never want to miss those opportunities. Never. never. Now, Dylan, you mentioned coming from 3,000 miles away because originally you're an East Coaster. Is that correct? I, I, no, I, I actually grew up in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Ah. Yes, I'm an East Coaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't specify which direction. I'm an East Coaster. Uh, grew up in upstate New York mm -hmm. in a small town called Schuylerville. Where, uh, to give you a sense of what sort of town it was, my family and I moved there from, from Hartford, Connecticut when I was four. And we drove all night long. And I was four, but I was smart, so I was already reading. And as we pulled into town, I was able to read the sign that said, Welcome to Schuylerville, 
population 954. And that afternoon, in sort of a Norman Rockwell gesture, the white-haired mayor of the town himself drove out to the sign with a bucket o paint because we had moved in and amended it to say, and some Jews. <laughs> uh, and I lived there through uh, most of my childhood. I did most of my summers at summer camp in Maine. And then, uh, and then I went to prep school in Massachusetts, uh, at which point my parents ran away from home and uh, went to college at Sarah Lawrence, did my senior year in London. And then pretty shortly after graduation from college, I moved out here. Yeah. Uh, and it was one of the best things I have ever done for myself in my life. There were other things that had I done them at the same time would have made my experience here far more pleasant. But being this far away from my parents was vital to my sanity and my uh, sense of self, and my ability to develop as a human being. Yeah. Now, show business was kind of in your blood already, right? Wasn't your mother in movies? Wow. Uh, I, uh, she would love to hear you say that. <laughs> um, let's say yes. My mother was a, uh, an assistant director, uh, and not until I went away to prep school. She had spent some time producing at the PBS station in upstate New York, WMHT in Schenectady. And uh, she worked as a producer there. She did a, a sort of an interview show of local celebrities and so on. And then when I went away to prep school, she said, you know, she had hung up her career when she married my father and had kids. And I was the youngest. So now that I was out of the house, she was going to pick it up again. I only learned in the last seven or eight years that also she was experimenting with the possibility of leaving my dad. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't know that at the time. Uh, at least consciously. Right. Um, but she moved down to New York and got an apartment and got into the Directors Guild training program, uh, the DGA trainee program. And was a DG, she was the oldest DGA trainee in history. Oh. She got in at 40 and, uh, and worked her ass off. And then eventually my dad moved down to New York and lived with her again. And then they've been together since. Um, so she was in, in production in films for... Uh, some of my adult life, uh, uh, my, my adolescent and adult life. Okay. My father was an actor years and years ago and then became a writer and then became a teacher of theater and is now a playwright. So there's always been show business around me. I've always been exposed to theater. Uh, I went to Broadway plays in New York whenever I went down to visit my grandparents when I was a kid. Uh, I was in plays at Skidmore College where my father taught when I was a kid. Um, and I've always had a, a, a love of and appreciation for the theatrical experience and all of the arts, really. Um, I knew very early that I wanted to be a comic. And I'm somewhat surprised as an adult to realize that I stopped being a comic and started being whatever the hell I am now. Uh, I call it humorist and storyteller because uh, that at least gives a jumping off point for a conversation. Right, right. <laughs> if I say I'm a comic, people say, well, you're not a very good one, are you? <laughs> There's an awful lot of silence in your comedy, isn't there? <laughs> well, I'm sort of a Chekhovian comic is what I am. I, you know, that's not going to play. So I have to amend it. But it, I knew I wanted to perform. I knew yeah. I loved audiences and attention. And, uh, and I started doing stand-up when I was 17. 
See, I'm interested in the fact that you have the same instinct that a lot of our guests and a lot of folks in LA have. Uh, the difference is, I feel like a lot of us are misfits from towns that, and, and, and sometimes families that really aren't necessarily, certainly not as involved in the arts as your folks were. Like your folks were, had those interests and had those uh, careers. Yes. Um, and so you're not rebelling against them in that sense. Although you did, like you said, have to, have to move across the country. In some ways, I really am. I mean, um, my father's thing always was you need to find a steady living that will support your art. You cannot create art to a marketplace. This was very important to him. Uh, and in some ways, I wish, I, I wish now that I had been more open to listening to him then. Um, and he makes his living in academia and is very free to do what he wants artistically. Um, so my rebellion came in the form of refusing to make a living. My rebellion came in the form of uh, insisting on using my art as a way to make a living. He loathes Los Angeles. He sees it as a venal, greedy place that has no idea what art is. And to some degree, I agree with him now. I didn't for a long time. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a thing I talk about a lot, and you can just, just make a hand signal of some sort if I become didactic and pompous and, uh, <laughs> uh, and you need me to be funnier more often, or we're going to lose our audience, man. You've got you to be fun. 15 seconds between laughs, pal. <laughs> You're not here to be intelligent. You're here to sell drinks. Um, you have to be intelligent because we certainly aren't going to be. I, oh, well, okay, so. then I'll try to cover that base as much as I can. <laughs> we this, brought coffee so you could bring, you know. I, <laughs> I, um, when I was a comic, I, I used to downplay my intelligence deliberately. Uh, and I didn't realize how much I did it. I knew that I did it, but... I remember my mother asking me when I was going to put the G's back on the ends of my I-N-G words. Uh, I did sort of a, an almost blue-collar kind of accent when I performed. I, was, uh, I tried to be as, as approachable as I could, as, as, as relatable as I could to an audience wherever I was. And, uh, and I smoked dope all the time because I was just too smart without it. I didn't yeah. want to be that guy. I didn't want to be an outcast anymore. I wanted to be. And now I'm just I'm reveling in it. In any case, I, Los Angeles... Artists from the East Coast come here because we are raised on this mythology, and it is pure mythology, that says, it says that if you are talented and you work hard, eventually that work will be rewarded. Someone will notice and you'll be rewarded for it. And if you are talented and you work hard and you are a true artist, then an audience will find you. And that is a load of crap. Because uh, what happens in Los Angeles is that nobody is interested in talent or hard work uh, or art. It's an entertainment industry, and entertainment is the word people use when they don't want to admit that they're saying anything through their art. And industry is the manufacture of a product for sale. So while they need craftsmen to create what is actually art, but is ostensibly just entertainment, so we don't need to think about what we're saying, uh, they don't care whether those craftsmen are artists or are hardworking or are talented. 
All they care about is, can the writer crank out a script in time? Uh, will it make enough sense to pass as you know, fiction for the screen? Can the actors learn their lines and stand in the right place? And uh, can the, the DP keep the people in frame? That's what they care about. And that said, can we make enough of this fast enough and will people buy enough of it for us to support our profit margin in this industry? Um, which means that if you show up at a pitch meeting saying, we're going to make something that's going to change the world, the first question of the person behind the desk whose job it is not to change the world, but to make a profit for the network is, well, what have I seen this like it before? Uh, how does that make me any money? So the entertainment industry in many ways becomes the antithesis of, of uh, sponsors of the arts. Um, and it becomes very difficult for the artist to find his way into a wider audience because the entertainment industry in large part is the gatekeeper to the audience. Uh, and people come here thinking they're going to get permission from the entertainment industry to speak to a large audience. And I've always said, if you're going to speak to a room full of people, you should have something to say. But that gatekeeper to which they're looking for permission is saying, well, we don't want to say anything. We don't want to know what you're saying. If you want to send a message called Western Union, they used to say when Western Union was a thing. Um, we're not making show art. We're making show business, they say. They have all these little pithy aphorisms that they use to justify not giving a shit what they're saying when they have the largest megaphone in the history of humanity. Um, so that's all very complex. It's a, it's, it's a complex struggle for every artist that comes to L.A. to figure out how they're going to do it. Um, and eventually, we all, if, if we're smart, no, that's not right. Let me take that back. Eventually, we all, if we are open enough to changing our understanding of the process of reaching an audience, we have to begin to define success for ourselves. We have to. Because we live in a capitalist society where success is determined by capital. Good afternoon. Uh, and that is not necessarily the quickest, the, the, the proper way to gauge success if you're an artist in a city devoted to entertainment. Uh, if a painter paints a painting and likes it and feels it has value and expresses a vision, success. If the painter finds four other people who like it and gather from it what the painter is trying to express, success. If the painter gets a gallery showing, success. If the painter sells a painting for $40, success. If a painter sells a painting for $100,000, success and money. Uh, but if the $100,000 is the only thing that determines success, then there are a lot of really great artists and performers and creators and writers who have no success at all because we are denied the right by our own mythology to define it for ourselves. <laughs> I'm going to go get a U-Haul. That wasn't, that <laughs> wasn't too shit. Ohio now. <laughs> well, that's the thing. If, if you do, know why you're doing it. Uh, a friend of mine, a guy named Jack Voorhees, who writes wonderful blogs called From Ohio with Love, uh, left L.A. And I don't have the full story on what went on, but he's a wonderful, funny comedy musician. He had a band called The Fresh. 
who did these really funny rockin' dick joke songs. Just, <laughs> they, were, they were wonderful. Um, and uh, I guess two years ago or so, he moved to Ohio and got a job and then lost his job and then got a job and lost it and now he's got a job again. But he's you know living a life out in America, outside of LA. And I don't know if he's making music or not. I hope he is, because he's a terrific musician. But he's writing these lovely blogs, these observations on his experience as a human being living in the world outside of the entertainment industry and what it feels like. And I am enormously admiring of him and his efforts in doing that. I don't know what led him to do it. I don't know, you know, whether he got into gambling debt or he was just tired of being told he couldn't do what he wanted to do because they can't play it on radio, so how are we going to make whatever. But he's doing lovely work. So, you know, do lovely work and be proud of the lovely work you do. And if we can all stop worrying so much about how many dollars we have or how many likes we have on Facebook or how many follows we have on Twitter as proof that we have value, uh, then I think we can all find a little bit more joy in what we do. At least that's what I keep hoping. <laughs> here, here. When I, um, when I first moved to Los Angeles within about a week of pulling my life out of the U-Haul, I was in a meeting with some uh, Fox executives who were you know, marketing people who were about to send me on a first-class flight something I'd never had legitimately paid for and taken part of. Um, they were going to send me first class to New Orleans with a few other people to do these kind of like viral video things, which is a funny concept, the viral video, because at no point is it viral. You know, right. it's, it's like, you know, it's like meeting the head of Halliburton, who like, we're going to put together a grassroots movement. That's right. That's the Koch brothers. So That's what the Koch so brothers did. Yes. You know, it's, 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 it's not what it says it is from the start, but it's going to pay me. And I, you know, I, I have things to pay for. So great. So I'm sitting at this table and these guys are explaining to me and a couple other writers who have to come up with these things for the wrestler John Cena to be in that are funny. And they are explaining to us in these broad categorical senses all the things that we cannot do. We cannot be deprived of anything. He cannot be made to look small. He cannot be made to look large. It was essentially, they had effectively, it was as if they had brainstormed to find some sort of broader category for everything that was ever funny so they could then tell us we couldn't do it. And we're all sort of looking around, and I know the guy that is, you know, like the guy that's basically like responsible for me being there. It's like, I'm going to get maybe shit on if I ask questions like, well, what the fuck are we supposed to do if we can't do anything? It's kind of what you've outlined here. So I just kind of held my tongue. You can find us on the internet at shakytownradio.com. You can Twitter us at at shakytownradio. You can like us on Facebook at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash shakytownradio. Send us an email at shakytownradio at gmail.com or call us on the Shakytown Radio hotline at 626-66-SHAKE, that's 667-4253. That's the same number. Hey, this is Mike Posolakis from the podcast Hugs and Disses. When I'm not being freaked out by girls I pick up on OkCupid, okay I'm listening to Shaky Town Radio Hour. The song on this episode is All Babes Are Wolves by the band Spinneret. 
You may recognize the singer from her previous band, The Distillers. Her name is Brody, and Brody has a solo album coming out next year. Speaking of solo, you're going to hear Dylan Brody take the podcast solo for an extended time here. This is truly an amazing feat that you are about to witness in your ears. There were so many distractions, mic breaks and computer malfunctions and loud people outside. Uh, Just settle back and listen to this story and appreciate how amazing it is that Dylan was able to stay on track and on task for this tale. There's a new story, a sort of a longish story that I'm working on right now, and I don't know how you feel about me just taking over the mic to tell a long story that I'm working on right now. But it's two pieces that I wrote a long time. They're starting to come together into this one thing, and I will now Flavin, and then you will Mahel Mahay if you like. Understand that I did not graduate from high school until 2001. I graduated from college in 1986, 1985, something like that. Because I'll tell you about that, and then we'll get to the... I When I... I went to a prep school in Western Massachusetts called Northfield Mount Hermon, and I smoked a lot of pot while I was there, and I also took a lot of classes because I was that guy. I was the stoner intellectual at Northfield Mount Hermon, and I I took my SATs beginning my junior year, figuring I could see where I needed to strengthen, and I did really well on them. So I started applying to colleges during my junior year. And I only needed very few credits in my senior year, and I realized I was going to have way too much time on my hands and get myself in trouble and get myself kicked out and screw up my future. So as I was sending out the applications, I went to the deans and I said, hey, if I get into college, can I get my high school diploma? And they said, no, you have to do your senior year. And I shrugged and said, okay, and stopped applying. And then Sarah Lawrence sent me a letter that said, hey, you never finished filling out your application, and we liked you, and you'd sent us your first draft of your first novel, and we think you're interesting <laughs> as a candidate. So... How about filling that? And I thought, well, if they're asking, I might as well. So I filled out the rest of the application and sent it in, and they accepted me. And I called them and said, you understand that I haven't graduated from high school yet, right? And they said, yeah. And I said, okay. And I went back to the dean, uh, Tom Tilson, who was the head of the Academic Policy Commission, the dean of academic policy, I guess. And I said, uh, so I've been accepted to college. So do you think I could have a diploma at the end of this year? And he said, no. Here's what we'll do. When you finish your freshman year of college, we'll give you a diploma. And I said, great. And then at the end of my freshman year of college, I got a call from the head of the theater department at the high school saying the lead in Merchant of Venice just dropped out. We've still got another three weeks of school here. You're finishing up the end of this week. You're the only person I know who can learn a Shakespearean lead in two weeks. Will you come play Bassanio? And I said, in sooth, what pays it? And he said, $500. And I said, huzzah. And up I went to Northfield to end my freshman year of college. Now I'm back at Northfield being paid 500 bucks, staying on the couch at my theater teacher's house and uh, playing Bassanio. And uh, Tom Tilson was in the play. He had a small role, and he and I are putting on makeup next to each other for a late rehearsal. And I said, so Tom, how about that diploma? And he said, I'll need something in writing. So I pulled out a napkin, and I wrote, so Tom, how about that diploma? And I handed it to him, and he said, I'm going to need something more formal. So that night after rehearsal, I went and I typed up a letter, Dear Tom, when I asked if I could go to college and get my high school diploma, you said no. When I told you I'd been accepted to college, you said at the end of my freshman year I would get a diploma. At the end of my freshman year I requested the diploma. You said I needed something in writing. I gave you something in writing. You said you needed something more formal. Here, therefore, is that formal letter. How about that diploma? 
Yep. And I gave it to him the next night, the makeup table. And he opened it and read it and laughed and said, this is funny, but it needs to be addressed to the Economic Policy Commission. That night I typed up a new letter and it went through all the litany of events again and ended up with, so dear Economic Policy Commission, how about that diploma? And I handed it to Tom to give to the Academic Policy Commission, because what? Um, and then I, uh, the night, dress rehearsal night afterwards, I went out and got stoned on a hillside on campus and stared up at the sky. If any of your listeners are in Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco or any major metropolitan area, let me just take a moment to advise them, once a year at least, drive out beyond the light pollution of the city and go somewhere on a clear night and look at the sky and you will remember at some visceral, savage, instinctive level why humans are all connected to one another when you see the vastness of the sky as it is visible on a dark night in a clear area. But I digress. So I'm lying there stoned looking at the stars and the security guy came up and said, you get back to your dorm, you're out after curfew. And I said, no, I'm not, I don't go to school here, I'm in a play. And he said, well, you're clearly inebriated. And I said, I don't go to school here. And he said, well, you are persona non grata, you are not allowed on campus. And I said, but I'm in a play that opens tomorrow. And he said, well, as soon as that play is over, you are never coming back. And I said, yes, sir. And then I did the play and went away. So I was as surprised as anybody when they invited me back in 1998 to be their first artist in residence. I showed up on campus, they looked at my resume and thought, oh, this is a good guy to have as a first artist in residence, stand-up comic, and he's been on television. And I got there, the contract said I was going to do four performances over the course of the spring term, and I was going to teach two courses, one in adventure fantasy writing, and because uh, I had published my first novel for young adults, adventure fantasy and one in stand-up comedy writing and performance, because that's what I did. And then when I arrived, the, the liaison to me came to me and said, uh, listen, we've got a, a campus-wide assembly, required assembly in the chapel to open the, the term, and you know, all the administration is going to talk to the students. Would you go up and introduce yourself to them and maybe do five, seven minutes of your act? And I said, really? And she said, yes. And I said, uh, you want me to tone it down, we're in a chapel, do you want me to, and she said, no, there's no point in having you on campus if we're not going to let you do what you do. And I said, cool. What I did not know at the time was that they had hired me based on my resume and no one had ever looked at my tape. They knew that I had written jokes for Leno, they knew that I had, you know, I had these great, if I lived anywhere but in Los Angeles, I would seem very successful. But I live in Los Angeles where, you know, making a living is considered failure and making a killing is considered a start. So. I, they hadn't, they had no idea what I did. And I went on stage and I started to talk to the kids. And uh, she'd said, you know, uh, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll Swiss you the order. The Swiss was the, the school-wide information system. It was right at the beginning of email. Not everybody had email, but if you worked at a school, there was always an, an, a closed, so it was Swiss and it had become a verb. So she was gonna Swiss me the order of the people speaking and she was gonna Swiss me my orientation package. She was gonna Swiss me my, so she was going to Swiss me the, the order of speakers, and I, I was there, I was ready to go. And I had material prepared for this event, and I said that I was happy to be there, that uh, I, I was going to use the time at Northfield to quit smoking pot, which was appropriate as it was where I had started. 
Um, and I said that I'd try to be open to uh, conversation with the kids that they might be afraid to have with other teachers. I had gone to school there. Uh, I had no vested interest in their well-being. And uh, I was well acquainted with the use of a hit towel, which is an arcane bit of, arcane bit of uh, prep school paraphernalia. It's a, there are two kinds. There's the, the hit towel for the door that goes under the door to keep the smoke from escaping into the hallway. And the other one that's rolled up tightly to blow each hit into as you smoke pot so the smoke doesn't escape into the air. And the kids just adored me. They thought I was hilarious. I could hear the administration behind me shuffling in their stiff back chairs. Can we just turn off the microphone? Can we just can we just turn off the microphone and send them home? What, what do we do? Um, I said that uh, uh, if they wanted to get my attention, they should feel free to Swiss me. If they really wanted to get my attention, they should feel free to French me. I did I did a lot of stuff, and the kids adored me. And then afterwards. Uh, the liaison to me came over to me and said, please don't tell anyone I give you permission. I could get in a lot of, I was like, it's okay, I can take responsibility for what I say, it's fine. And then I had to go apologize to the president of the school in her office. She said, what, what were you thinking? I was thinking you hired me. I was thinking you knew what I do. I'm irreverent, that's what I do. Um, and she said, well, here's the thing. You will do one performance, one performance only, and it will be a small, intimate coffeehouse performance, and you will not talk about drugs, and you will not talk about sex, and you will not talk about politics, and you will not talk about religion. Okay, that's pretty much my act right there. I, okay, So I wound up doing an innocuous performance in which I uh, played songs on the guitar. I talked a little bit about censorship, and it was not, mind you, the first time that I had succumbed to this sort of censorship. In the uh, mid to late 80s, Ronald Reagan was president, though he didn't know it at the time. It's during that little span. So uh, I was on the road in Texas, and I had at this time a bunch of material in my act. I was still a pot smoker, and I had a bunch of material in my act about why marijuana is illegal. This was, you may be too young to know this, but before terror, there was a war on drugs. Uh, before we hated anyone who was Muslim, I was the enemy. So I was doing all this material about the war on drugs. Uh, President Reagan's wife, Nancy, had established this campaign to just say no, which was based on the concept that the best way to fight a drug problem, as she perceived it, was through a, a generalized slogan of negativity. Uh, and she was known to do between 4 and 14 Valium a day. So it clearly should have been just say no. Um, and this was very frustrating to me at the time. And I would do a whole piece about, it was a long segment, but the, the, the thrust of it was that there was stuff you did not learn in grade school, that we were all denied in grade school uh, because marijuana is illegal for reasons other than those that they tell. They did not teach you in grade school that George Washington wrote in his private journal, and I quote, I prefer a pipe full of hemp to a glass of wine any day. Now, George, the father, the founder, the, for the guy in our money, talking about George going, Row! This is great. We'll sneak across the river in the fog. It's like we're invisible. <laughs> Row! You guys crouch down in the back of the boat. I gotta stand up here with the wind in my wig. This is hot. What, what was I just going to say? Oh, yeah, yeah. It'll get to you. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Guys, 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 guys. Wait a minute. 
Does it feel to you guys like we've been on the water for days? George, getting desperate late at night, scraping the resin out of the wooden teeth, smoking it, getting headaches. It was the idea that the, 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 the founding fathers were hippies, that the long hair was no accident, that there's a reason that our money is green. This is important stuff that I felt was left. The, the War of 1812 was fought over the availability of hemp. We, we made sails and rope out of it for our Navy, and that's the reason that nobody knows anything about the War of 1812. And that for centuries it was used uh, it was the most prescribed the second most prescribed pharmaceutical after aspirin it was a cash crop for all of the states at the time uh, it was uh, that was as cannabis it was used as medicine as hashish it was used by all classes recreationally and uh, it was a cash crop and uh, then in 1932 or 34 I don't remember now offhand uh, somebody found a way to make paper out of hemp, and that threatened William Randolph Hearst's lumber holdings. So he started talking about it in the newspapers with this word no one had ever heard before. He was calling it marijuana, which made it sound Mexican. And he used xenophobia to turn everyone against it, saying that it was this dirty drug that was coming across the border and uh, causing Negroes to walk around smiling in public. And that was terrifying, but wasn't enough to get it outlawed until someone found a way to refine hemp seed oil to make fuel. And that threatened DuPont's petroleum holdings. And he knew people in the Ways and Means Committee, a bunch of stodgy old white guys that should have been known as the Weeds and Moans Committee. And he snuck it in there in the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act. Uh, and it was outlawed very quickly because, and you can look this up in the Library of Congress, according to arguments in Congress, it was causing uh, white women to enjoy jazz music in the company of black men. So the terrifying drug needed to be outlawed. So in order to protect William Randolph Hearst's paper holdings and DuPont's uh, petroleum holdings, we are no longer allowed to smoke marijuana. I can't go get high behind the club after the show because that might threaten the two industries that are most rapidly damaging the planet. And when you think about it, a nation full of cars that run on hemp oil could be a lot less stressful to get caught in traffic in. Let's <laughs> roll down the windows and crank up the tunes. Everything's going to be fine. So I do this. It's, it's a longer piece than that, but you get the thrust of it. <laughs> I'm doing that piece on the road in Texas, and the club owner comes up to me afterwards and says, Dylan, you're very funny tonight, man, but i got to ask you uh, not to do that marijuana material. And I said, well, okay, but I'm going to have to replace it with everything I've got on censorship. And he said, well, I don't mean to censor you, Dylan, but I'm trying to sell alcohol here. As though I am so influential that I'm going to do a few jokes on stage and the entire room full of people is going to get up en masse, go to the bathroom, smoke a doobie, and spend the rest of the show cotton-mouthy ordering water. Because <laughs> I am such a, you know, it was ridiculous. And even more offensively, the idea that it doesn't count as censorship if it's purely for reasons of profit. And yet, I needed the work, so I stayed and I replaced that material with other stuff while I was in Texas. And here I was now, years later, teaching these kids in Northfield, Mount Hermon, doing my stupid, innocuous songs on the guitar, because that's what I'm, and I'm teaching what I can teach. And, and at the end of the term, one of my students came up to me as he was getting on the bus to go home. He was getting ready to leave. And he came to me and he said, uh, 
though after all that brave talk at the beginning, it turns out you're just as, just as much of a sellout as the rest of them. And I said, look, I, I thought it would be better if I could stick around and teach you guys than if I just made a scene and stormed out. And he sort of shrugged. I said, I'm sorry if I let you down. And he said, yeah, you're a grown up and walked away. And then I had to drive from Northfield back to Boston uh, to fly home and spend that whole car ride with myself, whom I hated, realizing that ultimately I hadn't put up with the censorship because I needed to stay and teach the kids. I had put up with the censorship because I had booked out 10 weeks and I needed the money and I couldn't afford to just abandon that much work because I have a life and a mortgage. I was finally no better than the club owner in Texas. I, I just had the decency not to claim that it doesn't count as selling out if you're only doing it for the money. And then I flew home and I got a, a phone call from the school from the alumnus's, alumni's, alumni, the alums, the communications department saying, we're putting out an issue of the magazine, we're going to talk about you in it, because it's always great to have mention of graduates who have come back to do things for the school. And I said, well, you know, I'm not a graduate. And I said, what? And I said, no, 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 I was declared persona non grata when I left uh, after not having gotten a diploma. And there was this pause on the line. I said, well, we're going to get you a diploma right away. And I said, okay. And weeks went by and no diploma came. And I did get the magazine that had the article about me that claimed I was a graduate. And I called them and I said, you know, I never got a diploma. And they said, oh, we'll get that to you right away. And I never got it. And I said, you know, I, there was a letter that I sent 20-something years ago to the Academic Policy Commission. Whatever happened to that? And she said, I'll look into that. And it turned out that the Academic Policy Commission had read my letter and decided that it was too snide. And I waited and no diploma ever came. And then in 2001, the phone rang. And it was a student from Northrop Mount Hermon saying, hi, I'm calling from the Northrop Mount Hermon Fund. I was wondering if you would donate to the, to the school you graduated from. And I said, actually, I didn't graduate. And she said, what? And I said, I'm not even going to discuss this with you until I get a diploma. And she said, oh, uh, OK. And two days later, by express mail, a diploma arrived saying that I graduated in 1982. And three hours later, the phone rang. And they said, hi, we were wondering if you would commit to the Northfield Mount Hermon Fund. And I said, you know, I'm going to need to see something in writing. <laughs> that was the most exhausting that story has ever been to tell. Your audience will have no idea why, but you understand why. And that, was, that took more focus than almost anything I've ever done. There were pieces I actually needed to pick up late and stick back in to make sure it all fit together. Good God. You've done well. You've done well. Well, thank you. That's what I, I'm hoping to get a, a live audience recording of that one uh, <laughs> fairly soon, just because I like, I like the way the two pieces fit together. Absolutely. Plus, it's an excuse to do all the old marijuana material now that I don't <laughs> smoke dope. You know, it brought to mind Nancy Reagan on different strokes, lecturing, <laughs> you yes. know, everybody. Um, didn't too, turn out too well for that cast. I don't feel like they... When I, want, <laughs> when I want health and emotional advice, I turn to a chiseled head on a stick. <laughs> yeah, Dana Plato didn't do all that well. Mm -hmm. Gary sort of fell apart. Mm -hmm. what, what was the other guy? Todd Bridges. Todd Bridges. I'm almost certain 
that Todd Bridges was at the dog pound waiting to adopt a dog when my wife and I took in a stray that we had found uh, in our neighborhood. But I wasn't certain. And I didn't want to say to poor some, some poor schmuck, are, are you that guy whose name I can't remember? <laughs> because whether it was or not, that would have been an awkward conversation. Right, right. I have to ask this this prep school youth. Uh, yes. John, John Irving comes to mind. Do you have any love for... Um, well, Colin Irving, his son, went to school with me. Okay. Um, John Irving, there's a... Uh, Shockingly, there's a story about John Irving that I have. John Irving came and read at Northfield when I was there. He was working on Hotel New Hampshire. It wasn't out yet. Uh, I think he was still in editorial process with it, but he came to do a reading. And uh, and it, I like a lot of his work. Um, although, when I'm being completely honest, in every book that I read of his, I'm going... Let me guess, a car crash and a bear? Um, <laughs> oh, there's wrestling. Who would have thought? Um, so, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of repetition of ideas that, uh, that I can't really fault him for because there's a certain amount of repetition of ideas in my own work. It's just that in his, because he is so prolific and so uh, well-respected and well-known, uh, his repetition of ideas can become a, a point of resentment for me. Um, in any case, he read excerpts from Hotel New Hampshire, and then he took some questions. And I said, what advice do you have for any writer? Because I was at that time working on my first novel. And he said, be prepared to betray everybody you love. Don't be afraid to betray everybody you love. And I don't think I argued with him. But I know that I was furious afterwards. And my father, who was also a writer, I got on the phone. I was 14 or 15. John Irving said that if I'm going to be a good writer, I have to betray everybody I love. And I don't think that's right. I think you can be, you know, fair to them. You can case secrets for people and you don't have to... Because I know everything and I'm an adolescent. And then um, a few years ago, I wrote and recorded a piece... Uh, and I also wrote a play that dealt with my relationship with my mother. And I realized that I was revealing things that she would not be comfortable with me revealing. And uh, I have a piece that I do on stage about my grandmother's al uh, Alzheimer's that is in some ways a betrayal. And I realized that I will betray anyone if I see a, a good line or a laugh or a point to make through it. And uh, I sent John Irving a letter that said, this is going to be meaningless to you. But when I was 14, you gave me some writer advice that made me bristle. And I have since realized that you were right. And really, who doesn't like getting mail telling them they were right about something once? <laughs> Sincerely, Dylan, that's like all I said. I didn't explain what the argument was. I didn't tell them what it was about. Just you were right about something once. Any reply? No. No, I've met his wife a couple of times, uh, but I have not yet met John. Uh, I'll send him a copy of the new novel when it comes out. Maybe I'll get a letter from him. Maybe he'll just think I'm a crazy stalker. <laughs> Either one is good with me, really. <laughs> Whether it's a thank you card or a summons to appear on yeah. the <laughs> I'm, restraining order. I, I'm happy with a blurb or a restraining order. Whatever gets it's the all, signature. It's all flattery. That's right. That's so true. I used to be uh, way more prolific as a, a performer, musician, and, and all my songs were betrayals of every woman I loved. 
Sure. And now that I'm with one woman, I, I don't write as much music. <laughs> or probably feel as comfortable playing those songs about girls that you used to have those feelings for, be it fondness or anger or yeah, both. Sometimes, sometimes both on the same day. Yeah. Same minute, even. Absolutely. <laughs> what, what did you play? Uh, guitar. Uh, badly, but... Uh, no, no. I, I play guitar badly. Awesome. Nice. <laughs> uh, I, my, my strength's more in my, my singing and my lyrics than ah. the actual uh, guitar craft. My, my strength is more in my lyrics and my charm. Yeah. My singing's not great. My guitar craft <laughs> isn't great. But. You, you, um, you, you did mention performing music uh, at, at the college, and, but you started out um, at, in stand-up. Stand-up was the... Yes, I did. Bread and butter for a while, yes. Yes. Um, at what point did that metamorphosize into storytelling as opposed to the, the stand-up comic structure? Was it a conscious that's, choice? Was it just... That's a great question. And uh, it was not a conscious choice. <clears throat> it was a conscious choice to stop doing stand-up. Here's, uh, in 1994, I sold my first book. And Johnny Carson announced his retirement. Now, all the time that I had been coming up as a comic, I started in 81, summer of 81. I've been saying for years that I started in the summer of 82, and then recently realized that that was because I had finished high school. It was right after I left high school, and I was supposed to graduate in 82. But I left before, <laughs> as we may or may not recall from my long-winded story of a few minutes ago. So it was the summer of 81, I started doing stand-up in New York. Uh, in and from at that point, the, the goal of every comic was to get on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. It was Johnny Carson. You didn't even call it The Tonight Show. You called it Carson. And I wanted that. Uh, didn't do anything in my career that would indicate that I actually wanted that. But that was, you know, the, that was the, the, the grail. Also, there was, as you may or may not know, a huge comedy boom that really started... 77, 78, and really ended in 94. And so I'd been working my way as a feature act, uh, sort of making a low-level living as a feature act, and was just starting to get some headlining gigs, and had been told that I could, my manager at the time said, you know, all you need is one national TV spot, and you can headline at every club that you've ever worked. And I said, great. And I booked A&E's Comedy on the Road with John Biner, which was a national TV spot. It was a proper showcase spot. It wasn't The Tonight Show, but it was exactly the kind of spot I was supposed to be looking for to make that possible. That happened. There's a giant earthquake a week before I went up to San Francisco to appear on Comedy on the Road. Uh, my wife moved in with me. She wasn't yet my wife. That'd be weird. Um, <laughs> Uh, she moved in with me because her home was destroyed by the earthquake, which was ironic because up until then she had said it would take an act of God. Uh, she moved in with me and I sold the first book and Carson announced his retirement. And my manager got the tape from A&E and got me a whole bunch of feature gigs and a couple of headlining gigs that paid less than I had expected. I said, what the hell? And he said, yeah, the boom is over. 650 clubs have closed across the country in the last three months. And suddenly, I couldn't do Carson. This thing that had been my goal for a while, just getting the TV spot that would get me headlining positions, wasn't going to move me forward the way it was supposed to. And I had sold my first book, and I thought, okay, I can be a writer. 
So I, I was going to just stop doing stand-up and figure out how to make a living as a writer. And I spiraled into a depression and went into therapy and started martial arts. And shortly thereafter, quit smoking pot. Well, quit smoking cigarettes first and then quit smoking pot. And then I couldn't do stand-up. Uh, the, the conscious decision to stop doing stand-up didn't stop me from doing it. You know, there were still clubs that would book me as a feature and I needed whatever money I could get. So I was still doing it. I just wasn't pursuing it the way I used to. And then I quit smoking pot and I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how to write jokes. I didn't know how to be funny. I just, I didn't know what to do as a, as a comic. My, my entire sense of self and persona revolved around having a cigarette lit and talking about pot and being this sort of rebel dope smoker. I don't drink, I smoke pot, I'm left leaning, I'm this guy and I know who I am and I can define myself, blah. And I couldn't. So then I stopped going, I stopped doing it entirely. I would, I, the couple of times I tried, I would go on stage and as soon as I started doing material that no longer applied to me, I would start to stammer and try to figure out how do I adjust this to make any sense? How do I explain who I am now to these people? I don't know. Ah. Um, and there was a long span that I just didn't do it at all. I was writing. I was writing trailers for movies. I was nominated for a Golden Trailer Award. Uh, I wrote a wonderful teaser campaign for um, Bad Santa that my favorite of the pieces I wrote for them, they didn't make, but they passed that script around to other trailer houses saying, look at this guy. So that picked me up a whole bunch of new <laughs> freelance work writing trailers. Um, and uh, ultimately, I wound up uh, thinking of myself as a writer. My second book came out. I was finding all sorts of interesting, weird writing gigs. And then... Uh, I recorded one story that I wanted to submit to This American Life, and they rejected it. And I submitted it to a place in San Francisco, a, a small radio station in San Francisco, who said, oh, this is great. How many of these do you have? And I said, how many do you want? And they said, well, we don't want to put pressure on you. And I said, how about if I give you one a week? And they said, okay. And I said, what does it pay? And they said, nothing. And I said, okay. So for 22 consecutive weeks, uh, I think it was 22 consecutive weeks, I wrote and recorded and emailed a story in my office. Uh, they ran from 7 to 14 minutes or so. And they were liking them a lot. And, and much like you, uh, having the technical difficulty, I was learning as I went. Um, the first ones that I did, I, so, I had so little understanding of the basic technology that I'd record it as an MP3 and then edit it and add a little music at the end and a little music at the beginning and stuff. But at each stage, I would save it again as an MP3 so that the quality with each save was deteriorating until what I was sending sounded as though I had recorded it from a phone booth. You know, it was right. just horrible. Um, but uh, the, the response to them on the radio up there was terrific. And I got an email request for a CD. So I took my favorites and burned them onto a CD and sent them to the guy and then put up on my website. I had a small website at the time. You, you can buy my CDs, just email me. And I started, you know, selling one or two a month, sending, you know, burning them and sending them. Yeah. And then uh, I did a spot on WBAI in New York, which is a Pacifica radio in, in Manhattan. 
and mentioned that I'm a storyteller and you can buy my CDs at. And I got 70 orders for CDs. And I spent, uh, you know, four days burning CDs and <laughs> packaging them and sending them. I thought, well, now this is interesting. Um, maybe I can do something with this. So I had two CDs worth of stuff. And I sent them to everybody I knew, just free copies to everybody I knew in town. And at a certain point, I thought, maybe I could start performing. And I started going to local workout gigs, stand-up rooms. There was one that a guy named Dante used to run at a the bar in a bowling alley. And it was a bunch of, you know, angry young comics like I used to do open mic nights with, maybe a notch above open mic night, who would go on stage and scream fuck a lot. And then me saying, and now I'd like to share a story about a dog that I once knew, you know. <laughs> and I would talk for seven minutes to a room full of drunks who were going, why aren't you funny? What's wrong with you? And I started adding fuck to a lot of my stories and hoping that would help, and it did marginally. And then a manager picked me up, uh, a man that I had known and had wanted to manage me. And he, he called me and he said, listen, I just sold a bunch of TV stuff. I've got some time to play. I've got some freedom. I've been listening to your CDs in my car for the last year and a half. I'm interested in representing you. What are you up to? And I said, I, I'm adding fuck to my stories to perform. And he said, well, stop doing that because I think what you're doing is more interesting than that. We have to figure out how to brand you as a storyteller. And he really took over that process and said, this is what you're doing and this is what is interesting about your voice. Um, he said, I have to take you out. We have to go shopping. We have to get you a nice jacket. We have to change the way you look. We have to change the way you present because we need everything to fall into line with this idea that you are a storyteller. You are an intellectual. You are something other than what people expect to see uh, on the stand-up stage as it exists now. And I said, I don't think what I'm doing is that different from stand-up. And he said, if it were 1958, it would be fine. You know, Bill Cosby did this. Nobody does this now. And he was right. I mean, literally last week, this week, um, I contacted The Tonight Show and said, I never had the opportunity to perform on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. You've announced plans to move to New York. I would hate to see it go away again. Uh, please take a look at this video of me online and consider having me on the show. And they got back to me and said, okay, give us four and a half minutes with a laugh every 15 seconds. I'm a humorist and a storyteller. What do you mean? No, that's what we need. That's what we do. Um, so maybe I don't get to do The Tonight Show still. Uh, but I, you know, I now know what I am. And that was because somebody else from the outside was able to define me for myself. Because I didn't know. I was just, oh, maybe I just have to add more cursing to what I do. And that was, he was right. That was not the way to go. Mm -hmm. um, I don't need to smoke dope and pretend I'm stupid. I can be smart and, uh, and find the smaller audience that maybe has more disposable income. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, that's where we're at, I think, in, with tech. And it's, it, technology is a big part of it because television, mainstream television, isn't the only um venue anymore that's right and there is clearly a lucrative living to be made in the world of podcasts <laughs> kill me kill me well it's funny to think to me like you know there's been you know a generation or two with that you know that the, the carson dream it's funny to think that now you know if it's i don't know if we're up to generation z whatever the fuck they're going to be there's no carson no. No. There is no they have, it's funny or die. shared place to there's go. There's funny or die. There's still a little bit of, you know, there's there's a group that idolizes Conan. 
Um, Fallon may revitalize the late night world in a way. Um, but yeah, no, there's Jon Stewart, which is not a place to get seen. You know, it's not an outlet. It's just the, the height of the comedy industry right now. And then there's Funny or Die, and there's, there's one other, and I can't remember now what it's called. But there's, and then for Interlock, the thing I want now, and this is goofy, but the thing that I really want now is a TED Talk. Mm-hmm. I want to do a TED Talk. I love that audience. I love that concept. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a, a whole new burgeoning life of the, uh, of not just comedy but of communication and uh, one-on-many communication that it'll be really interesting to see over the next 10 years what that develops into because it's not going to be the same thing it is right now. And, you know, I can sit in your house and have a conversation and be heard by dozens, hundreds. I don't know how many people listen to your podcast. It's probably not thousands. (laughs) Right. If it's thousands, you're doing great. You know, none of us is getting paid for it. But if out of that thousand, there are a hundred or out of that hundred, there are 10 who go, this guy's cool. This this guy's saying interesting things. And he just talked for 17 minutes and told a long, weird story and didn't once demand that we laugh or, you know, whatever goes through people's heads when they listen to my nonsense. Uh, and... Out of those 10, three of them go to Amazon and iTunes and order my stuff. Then I'm building a tiny little but widespread audience that I could never have reached uh, just 10 years ago. Hi, this is Allison Crumwitty. You're listening to Shaky Town Radio and you're eating maggots, Michael. <laughs> okay, now I have to know. Let's talk about the new CD you have out writ large. The new CD is called Writ Large. This is my fifth CD with Stand Up Records. And for me, in many ways, one of the scariest CDs I've put out. Um, There's some personally revealing stuff on it that, uh, and I always try to be ruthlessly honest about and with myself in my CDs. Uh, But in this one, I've gone into a couple of places that were very frightening. There's, I think, one track on it, one longish track that has no laughs. It's, it's, the CD is very funny. I've got some of the funniest stuff I've written on it. And then this one piece that is just uh, just raw. It is just a story that I needed to tell. Um, and uh, we recorded it live at UCB, Upright Citizens Brigade, um, which is a great space and a great organization. Matt Besser opened a door for me. And uh, I have Scotty Bredman on the final triptych of the CD doing percussion because, you know, that's normal in a stand-up record CD. (laughs) Um, uh, The photography by Kat Gwynn on the packaging is gorgeous. The liner notes by Kelly Carlin are gorgeous. You know, you can tell you're running with the right group of people when you put out a CD that you know has good work on it and you hope it can just live up to the packaging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it, I really do, on this one, I feel that way. It's like the, the whole 
the whole product is so ridiculously beautiful that I can't believe I am lucky enough to have, to have my voice being the primary thing on the on the audio tracks. Um, and Dan Schlissel put up with a lot of nonsense from me on the production of this one. Uh, this was the last one on a three CD contract with him. And in the past, I've been very lackadaisical about, you know, yeah, just have your guy design something. Yeah, I'm going to have Kat do the photography, just take the photographs and do something. And maybe I would look at it and say, all right, can you change the font a little bit? You know, I, and on this one, I, I wanted Kat Gwynn's photography to be fully respected and, and properly showcased. So I actually consulted her when I got the first draft on the design and said, Kat, is there anything you'd like to see change? And she had a couple of small things she wanted changed. I wanted a font change. I wanted a little bit of a design change. And we made them do, I think, two or three passes on the artwork, on the, on the design, to make it really as nice as I wanted it to be. Uh, and it's, it's a gorgeous piece of work all the way around. I am unbelievably thrilled to have this one out in the world. Um, I, I, I don't know if every comic, every performer, every humorist has this. But there is such a history of early deaths in the world of humor that after each piece of work I do, there's this little part of me that goes, if I died now, would it be okay? And, you know, most of the time I would rather not. And after this one, I was like, okay, yeah, all right. If, yeah, this is, it'd be fine. If this was the one that went out on the market and then he died young, people would be really upset about the unfulfilled potential. That's good. I feel that way about tweets. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was jumping on a plane for the holiday weekend and I was thinking, this is the last thing I tweet. Like, you know, it, you, you can't like, it can't be like a, a ironic retweet of Jan Brewer's Twitter account or something. You know? Right. So I understand that. I, I find now that I think of things and where I used to think of them and go, oh, got to jot that down for to put in a set somewhere. If it's that short, I'm like, oh, that's a tweet when I get home. That's it. When I, next stoplight, I have to tweet that. I, yeah. um, on the way down here, I haven't, I haven't tweeted it yet. So for some people, this will be a, re a repeat when you find it online. <laughs> uh, on the way down here, I thought, in retrospect, I can understand why my 75-year-old mother was confused when I said I was in the car listening to the mountain goats. <laughs> <laughs> If only we were doing this show live. <laughs> oh, right. Damn. And of course, that Twitter account is at Dylan Brody. At Dylan Brody, that's correct. D-Y-L-A-N-B-R-O-D-Y. We differ in the uh, the I-E or Y ending there. Well, I'm guessing you are not Russian Jewish. No, I'm... Uh, Irish of yes, some sort. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, I am a Russian Jew with a Celtic name. There you go. Um, and you do have some... And we were talking a little bit about... Uh, Celtic things, and uh, you, I know from uh, Jackie Cation's Dork Forest that you have interest in swords and medieval things, and um, also the martial arts. You did a whole show about your yes. delving into the martial arts. Yes, I'm a Taekwondo master, a Hapkido instructor, and a first-degree black belt in Kikumdo, which is a Korean sword style. Uh, and, and you're still active uh, in your practice? Eh. <laughs> um, I've, I've stopped training regularly the way I used to. I occasionally take private students. Uh, I, I do intermittent training on my own. Uh, I'm on an antidepressant. That sounds like a weird segue, but I promise you it's going to make sense in a minute. I'm on, on an antidepressant, and when they put me on the antidepressant, and thank God they did, um, I 
the, one of the first things they said is that it may make you make it difficult for you to reach orgasm and you may put on weight. And I said, oh, that sounds like it's going to cheer me right up, Doc. That, <laughs> wow. Um, and indeed, all of, all of those things happened. Um, and then uh, in New Orleans recently, I was at a bar with a friend and was discussing this and she, she was saying and are you working out are you doing that and I said I can't I don't feel like it and a doctor at the next booth said oh you said you're on Paxil right and I said yeah and he said yeah the the same thing that makes it difficult to achieve orgasm makes it almost impossible ever to get the runners high so no matter how much I work out I never get the endorphin release so there's never any positive feeling in it for me, which filled me with relief because I really thought that without depression, I was just lazy. I thought, oh, so my options are either be depressed or feel good about my ability to go work out. I, I, I don't know. This can't be right. Um, it would be the other way around, be depressed and feel good about my ability to work out or not be depressed and hate myself for not. But it turns out that part of the effect of the medication is that you never get the positive feeling out of the workout. Um, and it makes it very difficult for me to make myself go as regularly as I used to. Um, and mostly now I train technique. I don't do a lot of the, the physical training that I used to do. Because um, I'm an old man. And by old, I mean very young and handsome. Right. With a doctor's note to get out of gym. That's correct. That's my point, is that I now have a, a doctor in a bar gave me a note to get out of gym. It's not how you get the appointment. It's the paperwork you come away with. I like the way you think, young man. That's what kept me out of med school. <laughs> and if you had that gone to med school... to sciences. If you, if you had gone to med school, I would come to you for a note to get out of gym. Um, so yes, I, uh, martial arts were a huge part of my battle with depression yeah. uh, that was the first thing that broke that broke me out of depression uh, and then eventually I needed more and the medication uh, helps enormously but inhibits the ability to study martial arts I studied uh, Western sword styles long before I did martial arts I studied at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London and part of that training included stage combat and before that I worked at a Renaissance festival where I'd started uh, doing swordplay stage combat. So I am uh, proficient with rapier and rapier and dagger and small sword and small sword and uh, broadsword and buckler and broadsword and um, uh, quarter staves and all that stuff, yeah. which is very, very useful when you live in Los Angeles. Right. Um, but I already had that and still always thought of myself as non-athletic yeah <laughs> uh until i started with the martial arts and that changed my psyche in a lot of ways that was all part of the time that i was quitting smoking pot too the, the martial arts so that was another thing because i had grown up non-athletic that was another part of my internal legend that was changing that was preventing me from doing stand-up um i did not know how much of my stand-up came from a place of fear and when i was no longer afraid all the time I had no idea how to deal with a room full of people. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I love, I love all things Celtic. I do the, I, when I studied in London, I drove to Scotland at one point, And there was a place in Scotland where we were driving along and there was a cliff. And there were long-haired sheep 
sitting on the cliff, looking out over the ocean. And I, at that time, genuinely believed that all I wanted to be when I grew up was a sheep. Because, boy, they looked wise and contemplative and satisfied. They are the most zen of all the animals, I think. It's got to be your turn by now. <laughs> I'm rambling about which animals are the most zen. It's got to be time for a question or something. I think there's something in, something intrinsic in us to all have that pause after. A description that is worthy of a, a pretty effective postcard or the qualities of the animal. I was on, the, I was on the cliff in my mind. I, I understand that. that. I'm just going to let that ring out like a, nice. like a 12 string. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, something also occurred to me. Um, I might be making a weird connection out of nowhere, but... Um, Which would be a precedent. <laughs> you as a, a political person, uh, certainly a political writer on the Huffington Post from time to time. From time to time on the Huffington Post. Um, I come from uh, the zine community, and in the zine community, there's a lot of writing lately. Uh, I was having a conversation with uh, Meredith Wallace from LA Zine Fest. Um, I'm xenophobic. I'm deathly afraid of <laughs> online publications. I just wrote that. I just wrote a new xenophobic joke, ladies and gentlemen. Go ahead. Sorry. We were talking about how um, there's a lot of talk lately about uh, sobriety, number one, but uh, also even, I think also, which this would encompass that, but self-care. Um so there's a lot of conversation, a lot of writing about self-care right now. And, and like you talked about your methods and, and what you pursued, um, not only medically, but, you know, pursuing the martial arts. Um, Quitting smoking pot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm wondering if there's a correlation between that, and maybe it's not quite on the zeitgeist, maybe it's just me and my friends in our little community talking about these things, but if there's a correlation between that and the horrible clusterfuck that is healthcare right now. Um, you know, we've had this passing of legislation and there's a lot of debate about whether or not it's going to be a help or a hindrance. I know that there's a lot of companies who see it as a hindrance and therefore are screwing their employees by saying we're going to cut these other benefits since we have to start paying. Generally, first of all, let me say this. Generally speaking, the fact that you say there are companies saying it is a hindrance is an indication of how deeply ingrained in our psyche now the idea is that corporations are people, which is a horrible, horrible thing for us to believe. A company cannot say that something is a hindrance. Somebody who works at a company whose job is to make sure that the company's profit margins are as wide as possible said it is a hindrance. Um, because if the company said it is a hindrance, then it would be the people who are being screwed also who are saying it's a hindrance. And they're not. They're saying that being screwed is a hindrance. Um, the, there, there are so many different angles on what you want to say that I want to talk about that I'm going to try to narrow my thoughts down to some quick bullet points. Uh, I think Obamacare, as it is written now, uh, will be a huge help and will not solve the problems. Obamacare already at the start, no, 
already as as past mm-hmm. was so far from what so far compromised from what we should have done that it was already a concession to the insurance industry um i think the idea that the wealthiest nation on earth does not have universal single payer health care because that would cut into the profit margins of some of the most corrupt corporate entities in the history of humanity is offensive and uh, upsetting. Um, and that the main objections to the, the proposed changes to the healthcare industry came from the Tea Party, which was a misguided group of people who did not know that they were being controlled by the Koch brothers um, and believed they were part of a grassroots organization in much the way that Fox TV can put out a viral video. Um, and and uh, I, the, the ability of money to spread misinformation is horrific. It's horrific. Um, and it is the opposite of what we were all led to believe democracy was designed to, to do. Um, you know, my favorite part of the Constitution is the part where it says that capitalism shall be practiced in an unfettered manner. Oh, wait, that's not in there. Um, and we, since the, the 40s, we have so uh, equated anything that breaches unfettered capitalism with totalitarianism that the average American, and by the average American, I don't mean the average American. I mean anyone who is not in the top fifth percentile in terms of critical thinking and personal reasoning. That'd be the top fifth percentile or the top 95th percentile. How does that work? In the top 5%, anyone who is not in the top 5% in terms of critical thinking and, and, and personal reasoning would have difficulty telling you the differences between socialism, communism, totalitarianism, uh, and oligarchy. Those are all just, and plutocracy, all of those are sort of thrown around as though they mean the same thing, and they so don't. Um, and when I was a kid, second grade, so it's not like this is a new thing. When I say it's been going on since the 40s, I'm not kidding. When I was a kid in second grade, one of the reasons that I was sent to the principal's office was that my teacher was explaining to us that uh, in America, uh, we have democracy, so our history teachers teach us the truth. Whereas in uh, the Soviet Union, they had communism, uh, which meant that they brainwashed their kids into believing that, that democracy was evil. And first I raised my hand and said, well, isn't that exactly what you're doing here by saying we teach the truth and, and they teach that it's evil? And she said, well, I don't know what you mean. No, democracy is good. Communism is bad. 
And I said, and I did not really know what this meant at the time. I had just heard it said at a party at my parents' house and was mouthing it back at her. But I said, okay, you can't compare the two. Communism is an economic structure. Democracy is a governmental form. And then I had to go to the principal's office until my father came in and said, oh, no, he's right, and sent me back to class. But people literally do not understand that it is possible to have democracy and communism in the same country, that it is possible to have democracy and socialism at the same time, that uh, socialism is not inherently the National Socialist Party that was Nazism. The, the words just all become muddied together into the same thing. So it becomes nearly impossible to have a nuanced conversation about uh, governmental form and governmental structure as opposed to, e to economic uh, uh, constructs. It becomes difficult to discuss any change in economic structure because any discussion of that can immediately be vilified as leading toward communism or socialism or totalitarianism, when in fact that's not what it's about at all necessarily. Now I think socialism is a damn good thing. I think democratic socialism might work very nicely. I prefer democracy to representative democracy, but I understand that there's a problem with that because sometimes the majority of people think something that's wrong. Um, and at those times, it's important that there be a governmental structure that allows for a nation to be on the right side of history even before its residents are necessarily ready to embrace that. Uh, I give you as examples desegregation, gay marriage, um, uh, legal bestiality. Oh wait, we don't have that yet. Um, but the, these are all complex and nuanced ideas. And we are, because the undereducated are more apt to vote conservative, uh, we as a nation have, have been allowing ourselves to be less and less well educated for decades. Uh, and thinking that's, and vilifying even, even intellectualism itself. Dick Cavett isn't on TV anymore. That, you know, I dare you to find on the vast array of channels that we now have one decent, complex conversation. Even C-SPAN at this point is just senators yelling at each other. Um, so when we get down to the, the massive cluster dangle that is health care, um, we should clearly have single payer health care. We should clearly have healthcare available to everybody. That should be seen as a basic human right. And the idea that it's not is an indication of just how far down the, the path of madness capitalism has already led us. Uh, I believe it was Benjamin Disraeli who originally said, anyone who is not uh, liberal when he is young has no heart. Anyone who is not a conservative when he is old has no head. I think anyone who comes up with pithy aphorisms to justify heartlessness already knows he's wandered off the path of human decency. I saw a picture of Dennis Miller in my head for no reason. No, uh, because, <laughs> because there's a guy who's purely mercenary. Right. Who is, um, we all thought when we first saw him that he was a brilliant left-leaning artist. 
it turned out that he's purely mercenary. He saw that he could get that job if he leaned to the left and he got famous with it. And then he saw that there was an opening in the market on the right and he started writing jokes to that market. And he doesn't care what he says as long as he gets a paycheck. And he has tiny, tiny little feet and we all know what that means. <laughs> See, if only Madhouse had done better at the box office, <laughs> then this could have all been avoided. It's strange to me thinking of the notion, and I know we sort of have these paradigm shifts, like there's no longer in many areas careers, you know, like it's not uncommon to look at someone's resume and see that in three years they've had eight to 12 jobs, because, you know, so many, you know, people don't stay, and, and overall what I get from that is that companies are, in some way, if they're not worse, then people's general feeling of them is worse, because they're not... They're not sticking around, or the company's not. So, But we still have this notion, by and large, as a culture, that our government is going to do a far worse job with our health care than the company that we suspect, and I'm even talking about some instances of the self-employed, is going to fuck us over or just fuck up all the decisions that they can make in relativity. Yeah, I do not believe that. I think the government, were it given the power and authority to do a single-payer system could do a magnificent job of it. Um, I, you know, I, the idea that started under Reagan that government is always the problem and must be made ever smaller really drives us toward totalitarianism faster than anything else. Um, although those who support that idea would disagree with me, they would be wrong, but they would disagree with me. Um, government has done a great many very good things. I mean, other than war, government has done some terrific things. Uh, I, I point to rural electrification. I think that worked out pretty well for us. Um, I point to the interstate highway system. Yeah. That hasn't been terrible. That's done good things. Um, the, 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 the canal that allows us to get from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Not a terrible, terrible thing done by government. Created a lot of jobs, uh, affected the economy in all sorts of positive ways, um, and for a long time, public education. Although it was always designed to some degree uh, to be aimed at indoctrination and assimilation. Um, and that, that's not entirely a bad thing. It just I, I have objections to some of the ways in which it's applied. Um, but uh, public education, a magnificent achievement. Library system. We've got all this stuff that the government has done very well over the years. Um, the, and then you have Reagan coming in and saying uh, Reagan is never the solution. Uh, government is never the solution. Government is always the problem. And Essentially, we have a ground swell of uh, uh, 40, what is it now, 40-year ground swell of belief in anarchy, that what we should do is take the government out of everything except, of course, whether or not women can have abortions and whether or not 
gay men can love each other. Well, you know, there are these weird little pockets where even the far right says, yes, government should be involved in that thing that bothers me. But just get government out of it. Get, shut down the postal service. Leave it to the free market. Sh you know, hire contractors to go to Iraq. Don't even have the government handle the, the military. Let's just make it all free enterprise everywhere. Um, and as a result, we have this growing disparity between the wealthy and the poor. Uh, greater and greater concentration of the wealth at the very top. Um, I have this theory that I have yet to commit to paper that capitalism grows out of feudalism and ideally it evolves towards socialism which is to say it goes from the very few controlling the lives of the many to uh, an exchange that allows the many to move toward the very few and closes that gap to the point at which the responsibility for the basic needs of all can be shared so that we're all starting from a, a, a much uh, higher water line to begin with, if we're gonna use the you know, rising tide raises all boats metaphor, which is primarily espoused by people who have boats um, and is no longer uh, really adhered to by those who live in New Orleans. Um, a rising tide lifts all boats sounds a lot better when your home's not underwater, people. Um, but so, uh, you know, it allows us all to start from a higher water line to begin with uh, and then work things out. Um, and it moves towards socialism if controlled. But if unfettered, it devolves back toward feudalism, which is really what we see now. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice that you know, we left England because we wanted freedom of religion and we didn't like this monarchy thing where God appointed one family. And yet we have like two or three families that keep running the country. And when they run for office, they all say, God told me to run. It's, we haven't really moved that far. And none of them received that message in a tortilla. Not a <laughs> single one. Which I keep waiting for. Uh, well, you know, those come from across the border and white women eat them in the company of black men. <laughs> All things in time. <laughs> uh, let's uh, let the audience know where we can find you, Dylan. Of course, DylanBrody.com is the best place. DylanBrody.com. At Facebook, find the Dylan Brody and like my fan page. I'm happy to friend you at Dylan Brody at Facebook. That's fine, but mainly go to the Dylan Brody because it's the fan page that uh, allows people who might pay me to know that I have fans. Absolutely. Uh, Dylan Brody at Twitter, mm -hmm. uh, and that is soon to be, I am told, a verified account. Ah, congratulations! I am soon to get the little blue check mark that means <laughs> that. Uh, I am actually who I claim to be. You're a real boy. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And uh, of course, the, the new CD, Writ Large. New CD is Writ Large. All of my CDs, uh, Brevity, True Enough, A Twist of the Wit, Chronological Disorder, and now Writ Large, available at Amazon.com and iTunes. Uh, full downloads are great, but please don't shuffle them. No, no, no. The, the idea that people are hearing split up little pieces of my CDs amidst their music is baffling to me and must be baffling to them because <laughs> I do long-form stuff and it, it all fits together into a complex and carefully constructed whole. <laughs> and can we still hear you, hear you on um, KPFK and on uh, 
Uh, I haven't been on KPFK in a while. I believe David Feldman fired me without telling me. Uh. I'm not certain of that. Uh, I am intermittently on WBAI in New York. That's CCCP is the show that I do there. Uh, you can hear me intermittently on KSRO in Santa Rosa, where I am a guest on Steve Jackson's show on The Drive. And I provide regular commentary to Off Ramp with John Raby on KPCC, on NPR, right here in the Los Angeles area. You can also read me at the Huffington Post, and you can find me most nights walking my dog in Silmar. It's not a crap neighborhood, but it is crap neighborhood adjacent. <laughs> Sometimes we can uh, hear you also on a guy who stays on your neighbor's couch. Is that true? Darren, uh, Darren Staley runs the podcast, Dylan Brody's Neighbor's Couch. Uh, when I can, I open the show with him a little bit. He interviews all sorts of incredible people, uh, and he's a very funny and sweet man, and I urge you to listen to Dylan Brody's Neighbor's Couch and uh, comment if he allows that at the website, and find him at Crobama, C-R-O-B-A-M-A, on Twitter uh, for reasons that I have never understood. <laughs> Not why he would be on Twitter, but why he is Crobama. Right, right. Um, I it seemed to connotate a certain... It wasn't intended to. Potential it, pejorative. It, it, that's the thing, is it <laughs> seems to, but it's not. He's very, pro, he's very pro-Bama, but uh, apparently someone calls him Crowbar, and he was pro-Obama in North Carolina at a time when it, it was important to him to say that, so he made his name Crowbama, and then later realized that it might connotate a, pejor- a pejorative. A pejorative. Pejoratives, weren't they uh, the bad guys on Star Trek The Voyager? I'm not. I, it's okay. I'm not I, there yet. I thought it was one of Link Ray's backing bands. <laughs> Rinkley and the Pejoratives. <laughs> um, and you have, a, you have a live show, too. Uh, it has been a while since you've done it, but... I haven't been doing uh, Thinking Aloud. I, I, for six months, I ran a show called Thinking Aloud at the Improv here in Hollywood. And then for a year, I ran it at uh, the Fake Gallery yeah. in Los Angeles. And I've put it on hiatus, on indefinite hiatus... I'm hoping to get it going as a radio show, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't yet know if that's going to happen. I This is a very busy year for me, you have to understand. The CD just dropped. I have a, a novel coming out late May called Laughs Last, and my independent film, The Dylan Brody Project, is shooting with Cinema Alterna in late fall or early winter uh, with the brilliant Michelle Martin uh, 24-year-old, beautiful, beautiful young woman playing the role of Dylan Brody, a conceptual artist from New York. Uh, And that's shooting in in the fall. So my focus on putting up a show in town where I introduce other storytellers and poets to the world is not foremost on my mind right now, particularly what with it costing me a few hundred dollars a month to produce. Right. I am instead deciding to earn money this year, uh, much to my wife's delight. <laughs> the novel approach. Yeah. Wow. That's a. I feel like we've covered a wealth of uh, of outlets and uh, and places where we can find you. I um, hope so because it, it. I have an ongoing quest to become famous nine people at a time. <laughs> well, I think. We will get you one-third of that way. Excellent. (laughs) Score. 
So until somebody swisses me a appointment to uh, take a U-Haul to Ohio, I'm Brody Foster Hubbard. I'm Bob Schreider. And I am the purveyor of fine words and phrases, Dylan Brody, coming to you live from somebody's living room. Yeah.